Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Suppose you are trying to transmit a message. Convert each character into bits and each bit into a signal. Then send it over copper or fiber or air. Try as you might to be as careful as possible. What's received on the other side will not be the same as what you began with. Noise never fails to corrupt. But a team of researchers has finally created a long-sought, locally testable code that can immediately reveal whether it's been corrupted. That's next. Quantum Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. In the 1940s, computer scientists first confronted the unavoidable problem of noise. Five decades later, they came up with an elegant approach to sidestepping it. What if you could encode a message so that it would be obvious if it had been garbled before your recipient even read it? They called this property local testability because such a message can be tested super fast in just a few spots to ascertain its correctness. Over the next 30 years, researchers made a lot of progress toward creating such a test, but their efforts always fell short. Many thought local testability would never be achieved in its ideal form. Now, in a preprint released in November, computer scientist Irit Dinoor of the Weizmann Institute of Science and four mathematicians, Shai Evra, Ron Livne, Alex Lubotsky, and Shahar Moses, all at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, have found it. Tom Gurr of the University of Warwick says it's one of the most remarkable phenomena that he knows of in mathematics or computer science. He says it's the holy grail of an entire field. Their new technique transforms a message into a super canary, an object that testifies to its own health better than any other message yet known. Any corruption of significance that's buried anywhere in its superstructure becomes apparent from simple tests at a few spots. Madhu Sudan is a computer scientist at Harvard University. This is not something that seems plausible. This result suddenly says you can do it with about as minimum a redundancy as we can imagine. Most prior methods for encoding data relied on randomness in some form. For local testability, randomness could not help. Instead, the researchers had to devise a highly non-random graph structure new to mathematics. They based their new method on that graph. It's both a theoretical curiosity and a practical advance in making information as resilient as possible. Noise is ubiquitous in communication. To analyze it systematically, researchers first represent information as a sequence of bits, ones and zeros. We can think of noise as a random influence that flips certain bits. There are many methods for dealing with this noise. Consider a piece of information, a message as short and simple as zero, one. Modify it by repeating each piece of it, each bit, three times to get zero, 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 one, one, one. 
Then, even if noise happens to corrupt the second and sixth bits, changing the message to 010110, a receiver can still correct the errors. Such a method of modifying a message is called a code. In this case, since the code also comes with a procedure for fixing errors, it's called an error-correcting code. Codes are like dictionaries, each one defining a certain set of code words, such as 000111. Here's Henry Yuen of Columbia University. The main idea behind any form of error correction is to add redundancy to the information that you're encoding so that if parts of the encoding gets corrupted, at least you have enough of the redundancy to allow you to reconstruct the original information. That's the high level idea. But then how exactly do you construct these error correcting codes? What scheme do you use? How do you add the redundancy? How do you add it in such a way that isn't wasteful? How do you add it in such a way that allows you to recover the original information even when there's been a huge amount of corruption in your data? How do you do this in a way that's algorithmically fast? To work well, a code must have several properties. First, the code words in it shouldn't be too similar. If a code contained the code words 0000 and 0001, it would only take one bit flip's worth of noise to confuse the two words. Second, code words shouldn't be too long. Repeating bits may make a message more durable, but they also make it take longer to send. These two properties are called distance and rate. Irit Dinur says you can think about distance as how noise resilient you are. So if you know you're going to be talking to me over a very, very noisy channel, there's going to be a lot of noise, and then you're going to want to use a code that maybe has lower rate, but allows you to recover from all this noise. A good code should have both a large distance between distinct code words and a high rate of transmitting real information. But how can you obtain both properties at once? In 1948, Claude Shannon showed that any code whose code words were simply chosen at random would have a nearly optimal trade-off between the two properties. But choosing code words completely at random would make for an unpredictable dictionary that's excessively hard to sort through. Here's computer scientist Henry Yuen again. From the very beginning, when Shannon investigated, you know, he defined this notion of error correcting codes, he showed that good error correcting codes exist. They're out there. Error correcting codes with all the properties that you want, properties like you don't have to add too much redundancy to them. They allow for recovery even when there's been a significant number of corruptions. In fact, he showed that essentially if you created an error correcting code at random with very high probability, it's going to be an optimal error correcting code. So it's like, well, if that's the case, then why aren't we done? Like, What are people studying for the last 70 years? Well, the question is, it's random, but then how do you actually get your hands on one and know for sure that it's a good error correcting code and actually making it a practical one and actually picking one at random. It's an infeasible task. It's sort of like an existential result. Like it's out there. We can mathematically prove that there's many, many of these, but I actually want to write down on a piece of paper, a recipe for doing this error correction in, in a way that we can actually use. 
And that's been a challenge. After Shannon's breakthrough, over the next 40 years, computer scientists worked to figure out non-random recipes for arranging bits that approached the random ideal. By the late 1980s, their codes were used in everything from CDs to satellite transmissions. UN says the usefulness goes beyond communications. In theoretical computer science, people study error correcting codes, not just for the purposes of coming up with practical schemes, but in fact, they turn out to be extraordinary mathematical objects with amazing properties that are useful for many applications within the theory of computer science. But if you wanna construct exotic types of combinatorial structures or mathematical structures, error correcting codes lead the way surprisingly. And so this notion of error correction takes on a whole new dimension, a whole new life that's sort of where the beauty starts really coming through, at least for me. In 1990, researchers formulated the idea of local testability. But this property was different. UN says if you pick a code at random, as Shannon advised, there's no way it could be a locally testable code. Just the fact of it being locally testable with any sort of reasonable parameters, that doesn't work. So you actually have to work much harder to even show that they exist. Never mind coming up with an explicit example. To understand why testability is so hard to obtain, we need to think of a message not just as a string of bits, but as a mathematical graph, a collection of vertices or dots connected by edges or lines. This equivalence has been central to the understanding of codes ever since the first clever codes were created by Richard Hamming, two years after Shannon's result. Hamming's work set the stage for the ubiquitous error-correcting codes of the 1980s. He came up with a rule that each message should be paired with a set of receipts, which keep an account of its bits. Each receipt is the sum of a carefully chosen subset of bits from the message. When this sum has an even value, the receipt is marked zero. And when it has an odd value, the receipt is marked one. Each receipt is represented by one single bit, which researchers call a parity check or parity bit. Hamming specified a procedure for appending the receipts to a message. A recipient could then detect errors by attempting to reproduce the receipts, calculating the sums for themselves. These Hamming codes work remarkably well, and they're the starting point for seeing codes as graphs and graphs as codes. Dana Moshkovitz works in the computer science department at the University of Texas, Austin. To us, to think about the graph and to think about the code is like the same thing. To make a graph from a code, start with a code word. For each bit of information, draw a vertex called a digital node. Then draw a node for each of the parity bits. These are called parity nodes. Finally, draw lines from each parity node to the digital nodes that are supposed to add up to form its parity value. You've just created a graph from a code. Seeing codes and graphs as equivalent became integral to the art of making codes. In 1996, Michael Sipser and Daniel Spielman used the method to create a breakthrough code out of a kind of graph called an expander graph. Their code still couldn't provide local testability, but it proved optimal in other ways and eventually served as the basis for the new results. 
Expander graphs are distinguished by two properties that can seem contradictory. First, they are sparse. Each node is connected to relatively few other nodes. Second, they have a property called expandedness, which means that no set of nodes can be bottlenecks that few edges pass through. Each node is well connected to other nodes, despite the scarcity of the connections it has. Here's mathematician Shai Evra. Why should such an object ever exist? I mean, it's not so far-fetched to think that if you're sparse, then you're not so connected. But expander graphs are actually surprisingly easy to create. If you construct a graph in a random way, choosing connections at random between nodes, you'll get an expander graph. They're like a source of pure, unrefined randomness, making them natural building blocks for the good codes that Shannon pointed toward. Or as Evra says, If you're assuming two things which contradict one another, you can prove everything, right? So expander graphs, these are objects that have two things which almost contradict one another. So you can deduce from it almost everything or a lot of things. Sipser and Spielman worked out how to turn an expander graph into a code. The code words they came up with were built from many much shorter words produced by a Hamming code, which they called a small code. The bits of their code words were represented as the edges of the expander graph, and all the receipts for the small code were represented at each node. In effect, Sipser and Spielman showed that if you define the small codes at each node with good properties, then because the graph is so well connected, those properties propagate to the global code. This propagation gave them a way to create a good code, says Evra. Expansion, expansion, and again expansion. That's the secret. That's the secret for all success. But that expansion means local testability wasn't possible. Suppose that you had a valid code word from an expander code and you removed one receipt or parity bit from one single node. That would constitute a new code which would have many more valid code words than the first code, since there would be one less receipt they needed to satisfy. For someone working off the original code, those new code words would satisfy the receipts at all of the nodes, except the one where the receipt was erased. And yet, because both codes have a large distance, the new code word that seems correct would be far from the original set of code words. So local testability was simply incompatible with expander codes. Alex Lubotsky is a mathematician at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. The tricky point here, and that's what excited me about this problem, that in some sense for the first time, in coding theory, that you are fighting against randomness. To obtain testability, researchers would have to figure out how to work against the randomness that used to be so helpful. In the end, the researchers went where randomness couldn't into higher dimensions. It wasn't always clear they could make it. Here's Lubotsky again. The problem we had is to look for a needle in an eye star. Moreover, it was not at all clear that the needle really exists there. Local testability was achieved by 2007, but only at the cost of other parameters like rate and distance. 
These parameters would degrade as a code word became large. In a world constantly seeking to send and store larger messages, these diminishing returns were a major flaw. The hypothesis that a code could be found with optimal rate, distance, and local testability, which all stayed constant even as messages were scaled up, came to be known as the C3 conjecture. The prior results made some researchers think that a solution was inevitable, but progress started to slow and other results suggested the conjecture might be false. Computer scientist Tom Gurr says many in the community thought it was a dream that was probably too good to be true. But in 2017, a new source of ideas emerged. Denur and Lubatsky began working together while attending a year-long research program at the Israel Institute for Advanced Studies. They came to believe that a 1973 result by mathematician Howard Garland might hold just what they needed. Ordinary expander graphs are essentially one-dimensional structures, with each edge extending in only one direction. But Garland had created a mathematical object that could be interpreted as an expander graph that spanned higher dimensions. For example, the graph's edges might be redefined as squares or cubes. Garland's high-dimensional expander graphs had properties that seemed ideal for local testability. They must be deliberately constructed from scratch, making them a natural antithesis of randomness, and their nodes are so interconnected that their local characteristics became virtually indistinguishable from how they look globally. Tom Gurr says you make a tiny tweak in one part of the object and everything changes making these graphs a wonder. Lubotsky and Denor began trying to create a code based on Garland's work that might solve the C3 conjecture. Evra, Livne, and Moses soon joined the team, each of them experts in different aspects of high-dimensional expanders. Soon, they were presenting their work in seminars and talks, but not everyone was convinced that the theory of high-dimensional expanders would pave the way forward. Gurr says at the time, it seemed like space-age technology, sophisticated and exotic mathematical tools they'd never seen before in computer science. In 2020, the researchers got stuck until they realized that they could get by without relying on the most complicated new tools— the inspiration they had gained from high-dimensional expanders was enough. In their new work, the authors figured out how to assemble expander graphs to create a new graph that leads to the optimal form of locally testable code. They call their graph a left-right Cayley complex. As in Garland's work, the building blocks of the graph are no longer one-dimensional edges, but two-dimensional squares. Each information bit from a code word is assigned to a square, and parity bits, or receipts, are assigned to edges and corners, which are nodes. So each node defines the values of bits or squares that can be connected to it. To get a sense of what their graph looks like, imagine observing it from the inside, standing on a single edge. 
they construct their graph such that every edge has a fixed number of squares attached. So from your vantage point, you'd feel as if you were looking out from the spine of a booklet. But from the other three sides of the booklet's pages, you'd see the spines of new booklets branching from them as well. Booklets would keep branching out from each edge forever. Lubotsky says it's nearly impossible to visualize. And it's very complicated going ground into itself. The complicated graph also shares the properties of an expander graph, like sparseness and connectedness, but with a much richer local structure. For example, an observer sitting at one vertex of a high-dimensional expander could use this structure to infer that the entire graph is strongly connected. Here's Shai Evra again. The key to local testability is structure. What's the opposite of randomness? It's structure. So we need some structure that enables us to come up with a nice test bill. To see how this graph leads to a locally testable code, consider that in an expander code, if a bit or edge is in error, that error can only be detected by checking the receipts at its neighboring nodes. But in a left-right Cayley complex, if a bit, which here is a square, is an error, that error is visible from a bunch of different nodes, including some that aren't even connected to each other by an edge. In this way, a test at one node can reveal information about errors from faraway nodes. By making use of higher dimensions, the graph is ultimately connected in ways that go beyond what we typically even think of as connections. In addition to testability, the new code maintains rate, distance, and other desired properties, even as code words scale, proving the C3 conjecture true. It establishes a new state-of-the-art for error-correcting codes. It also marks the first substantial payoff from bringing the mathematics of high-dimensional expanders to bear on codes. Computer scientist Irit Dunor says it's exciting. We can say, like, we beat the best previous results. We're the best. That's nice. But that's not really what's making me excited about it. To me, the much more exciting thing is that it's a completely new way of looking at these objects. And who knows what else it will expose this way. Practical and theoretical applications should soon follow. Different forms of locally testable codes are now being used in decentralized finance and an optimal version will allow even better decentralized tools. There are totally different theoretical constructs in computer science called probabilistically checkable proofs, which have certain similarities with locally testable codes. Now that we've found the optimal form of the latter, record-breaking versions of the former seem likely to appear. Ultimately, the new code marks a conceptual milestone the greatest step yet beyond the boundaries for codes set by randomness. The only question left is whether there are any true limits to how well information can be forged. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Mordecai Rohrvig's full article, Researchers Defeat Randomness to Create Ideal Code, on our website, quantamagazine.org. 
Explore more math mysteries in the Quanta book, The Prime Number Conspiracy, published by the MIT Press. Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quanta Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. <laughs>